Like a lot of people these days, I work from home, and I really enjoy that. But many years ago, I had a more traditional job where I worked in an office building with other people. And there was a thing I liked to do that some of my co-workers thought was a bit odd. We got an hour off for lunch each day. And sometimes I'd go to the break room and eat, or maybe a few of us would get together and go have lunch at a local restaurant. Pretty common stuff. But what I did some days is get in my car, maybe eat a sandwich while I'm driving, and go to the 6th Judicial Court building. In this building, there are generally two types of people. There are those who are there voluntarily because they work there, and the others are there not because they want to be, but because they have to appear in court before a judge. These proceedings are pretty much open to the public. It's just not something a lot of people think about doing, unless you're an oddball like me. I'd get there and quietly slip into one of the courtrooms where court was in session and sit in what's called the gallery. This is the open seating section where you might see family members of the person on trial or newspaper reporters covering a case or people on their lunch hour with a weird curiosity about these things. Most of the time, the gallery was mostly empty. One time when I went in and sat down, The judge noticed me and stopped what he was saying and asked me why I was there or how I was connected to this case. I told him I was just there to observe and he continued with the proceedings. One of the times that stuck with me was when I watched a sentencing hearing. The defendant had already been found guilty. I don't remember what he had done, but he was there in the courtroom in the orange prison jumpsuit appearing before the judge. And I watched as the judge sentenced this person to spend 10 years in prison. There was just something about that that to me was really intriguing. And if that's the kind of thing that you find interesting, I think you'll enjoy this episode. My guest today is Jamie. She lives in the Los Angeles area, and a few years ago she was opening her mail and found that she had been summoned for jury duty. And the case she was assigned to was a murder. Content warning for this episode. This story includes descriptions of violent domestic abuse and murder. So please be aware of that going in. In the first half of our conversation, Jamie explained the details of the case so you'll know what happened. Then she'll go through what she experienced as a juror, not only during the trial, but afterward when she was contacted personally by one of the family members of the murderer. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river, and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car, and I held on. And I looked into the garage, and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this 
is What Was That Like? Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Tell us about the case that you were involved in. Yeah, so this was a murder case. Uh, It happened in the Santa Clarita Valley, which is like on the northern tip of Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles County. And that's where you live, right? It is. I've lived out here for about 10 years. And the the murder actually happened in Newhall, which is part of that bigger Santa Clarita Valley. And, uh, you know, it's 2015, January 2015, essentially. Well, I guess I should say, um, you know, I sat on the jury as the jury foreman. So this is how I kind of came to know about the case. I think it, I think the murder case was reported kind of in the local, you know, news outlets, but it definitely didn't make any kind of national headlines or anything like that. Courtney Arvizu was the victim. Rob Arvizu was the perpetrator. And those two met in January of 2015. Rob was much older than Courtney. Rob was in his early fifties. Courtney was 25 years old and they met in January of 2015, they started dating right away. The, I, I'm not sure how they met, but after the trial, uh, you know, this town is kind of like a big valley out here in Santa Clarita Valley, but it's the kind of valley where everybody's kind of connected to one another in, in some way or the other. So I came across some friends who I started talking about the trial and they said, you know, uh, Courtney and Rob used to work out at my gym. They may have met at the gym. I'm not sure. They were both gym rats. But I do know that Courtney and Rob lived across the street from one another. Rob lived in an apartment in Newhall and right across the street, Courtney lived with her mother in another apartment right across the street. So they started dating in January and, you know, they kind of just really fell in pretty quick and got serious. A couple months later in March, they went to a graphic design convention in Las Vegas because Rob at the time was a graphic designer and his employer had sent him there on a business trip. So Courtney went with him and just on a whim, they decided, why don't we get married while we're here? So they did. They just kind of had an impromptu wedding in Vegas. They'd only been together a couple of months. And after they'd gotten married, they went out to celebrate. They went to a bar. And at a bar, they ran into one of Rob's uh, former bandmates. Rob was really into music. I think Rob had some connection with um, Ozzy Osbourne and some people in his band back in the day. So they met up and they ran into one of Rob's old bandmates and they started, you know, drinking and things like that. Well, Rob and Courtney went back to their hotel room and things kind of got pretty dark. Rob immediately started accusing Courtney of flirting with the old bandmate. You're this, you're that, started calling her all these horrible names. And we would come to find out at trial that this is something Rob did. 
not only to Courtney, he was very verbally and also physically abusive, but he did this to former girlfriends years before Courtney. Now, it's unclear that, you know, Courtney likely didn't know Rob's past, right? When she met him, he probably charmed her, you know, as an older man, he was into music, he was into getting tattoos, giving tattoos. There was some sort of appeal, but she probably had no clue what his past was. So they go back to the hotel room, they start arguing. The argument turns physical and Rob actually strangles her so bad that she ends up with petechia in her eyes, which are basically like little blood vessels, I think, that pop when there's so much pressure placed on your neck. So there were police photos taken later and you could see the petechia in her eyes. You could also see that she had red marks around her neck. So while they were arguing, I guess it got so heated and so loud that some of the other hotel guests called the police or at least called security. And I think security were the first to arrive, but ultimately the sheriff's department was actually called and documented the fight and took photos of Courtney, although she did not press charges, I don't think, at that time. What a crazy honeymoon story. This was their honeymoon. I mean, so it's just right, right from the start of their relationship, things were not good. I mean, he showed his true colors right off the bat. But, you know, as so many women do, and it's, you can't victim blame. I mean, it's just, you know, there's manipulation involved. There is love bombing involved. There's the honeymoon phase after somebody is abused and the perpetrator says, I'm sorry, probably buys them flowers, you know, things like that. And it's just very easy for, I think, women to just fall back in to the relationship, even after something so traumatic happens. So that happened. They stayed together. They came back to Newhall and just kind of just started living life as normal. A couple months later, so this is now May, they've been together for five months. Courtney and Rob are invited to a birthday party for Rob's best friend, Eric, who lives in the Valley, who lives in Northridge. It's a house party. So they go and there was even a picture shown at trial of Courtney and Rob at the party. They have their arms around each other. Courtney's wearing, I think, like a black tank top and like some cute little short shorts. She was adorable. You know, they each had a beer in their hand and they looked happy. But things would quickly turn at the house party. And uh, Rob started behaving very erratically. I mean, he even jumped on this guy's back at one point, a guy who he didn't even know, who was another guest at the party. And I think he bit him on the cheek so hard that there was an injury to his cheek. So Rob was just, I don't know if it, you know he was intoxicated or what, but he was extremely erratic and inappropriate. This is just, it's just bizarre behavior. And this is not, I mean, in trial, other things would come out. His, bizar- his behavior was truly bizarre. Um, you know, one of his ex-girlfriends, some of the behavior that she reported uh, during one terrifying morning with Rob years prior, you know, to meeting Courtney was just, you know, he would abuse her and then he would get up and start dancing around and skipping and it just the weirdest. So I don't know what kind of his like, I don't know what was going on psychologically with Rob, but it, but it's apparent that there are other things at play probably. So he starts acting just, you know, crazy at this party. And he again, starts verbally abusing Courtney, telling her, you're, you're a whore, you're a housewife whore, you're this, you're that. He's charging toward her in a very aggressive manner. I mean, the whole party is interrupted by, by this fight. And, you know, Courtney was a firecracker. Courtney, from what I could tell and what, from what, you know, people had said about her, she was not one to just sort of take this abuse lightly. I mean, she would fire back at him. So she's 
at this party saying, you know, fuck you, Rob, fuck you. So they're just in this heated argument. Now the party was at, so Rob had a best friend named Eric. Eric was married to a woman named Maylin. Maylin was actually Rob's best friend from well before he even met Eric. When Maylin married Eric, that's when Eric sort of became Rob's male best friend. So, so Rob was very close with Maylin and Eric, and that's where the party was being held for Eric's birthday at their house in Northridge. So when he started charging after Courtney and just being really abusive toward her verbally, you know, Maylin and everybody tried to intervene. Maylin was even telling Courtney, please just shut up. Don't, don't fire back at him. This is getting too, to be too much, you know? So at one point, Maylin basically told her husband, Eric, look, you've got to get Rob out of here. So Eric pulls him into another room of the house and Rob proceeds to tell Eric, you know, Courtney's cheating on me. She's screwing other guys at work and this and that. And again, we would come to find out as jurors that, you know, from witness testimony that this is something Rob did. So whether Courtney was actually cheating on him or not, or not, we had no reason to believe that she was, but we had every reason to believe that this is something Rob accused almost every girlfriend of. You know, I don't know if it was just deep insecurity or what, but he accused every girlfriend of being a whore, you're cheating on me, all these things. So, you know, Maylin and Eric decided, you know, it's time for Rob to go. This has just gotten too serious. We've got to get him out of this house. We've got to separate him and Courtney. So that's exactly what Eric does. Eric gets Rob into the passenger seat of his car and he's basically going to drive him home to Newhall and get him out of there. Meanwhile, Courtney's left back at this house party. And Courtney and Rob's relationship was still new. They'd only been together for five months. So, you know, she didn't really know these people at the party all that well. And here she is all by herself at this party. She's been yelled at and charged at by her husband. And of course, not of course, but Rob actually ended up leaving with Courtney's cell phone and her car keys. So she had nothing. She, she was at this party with no phone, no keys. Eric and Rob get in the car. And everything starts off fine. But eventually, as Eric starts driving, he has to pull over the, onto the side of the road because Rob becomes violent toward him and starts yelling at him, saying, you're taking Courtney's side, you know, fuck you, this, this and that. And Eric's like, look, you need to calm down. You know, I'm going to drive you home, this, this and that. So Eric starts driving again. They get on the 405 freeway to drive home to Newhall. It's a very busy freeway for those of you who live in LA, you know. And as he starts driving on the freeway, Rob starts acting up again. And, and this time he becomes violent with his best friend. He starts punching Eric in the car while he's driving on the freeway. He's strangling him. So much so that, again, Eric has to pull over. And it came out at trial that Eric had some MMA fighting experience. So I think that it was, Rob was a big guy, but Eric was also like not somebody to be messed with. So Eric, I think at some point got Rob into some sort of like headlock to subdue him and just be like, dude, stop punching me, calm down. I'm going to drive you home. So they continue, Rob calms down again. They start driving on the 405 freeway. They get all the way to Newhall, but they don't quite get back to Rob and Courtney's apartment. They get to like a gas station somewhere in Newhall. Rob starts acting up again, becoming violent. Eric's like, I've had enough. He opens the passenger door. Rob gets out. Then Rob drops to his knees and starts kind of like pleading with Eric. I'm so sorry. I'm this. I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And Eric's like, look, this is enough. He's been assaulted twice now. So Eric slams the door and just drives off. 
So now Rob's somewhere in Newhall, close to his apartment, I think at a gas station or something. And Eric turns around and starts driving back to the party. But he's been injured by the assault pretty badly. By his best friend. By his best friend. On his birthday, on Eric's birthday of all, you know, of all times. Eric's driving back to the party, but he, before he gets back to his own house, he decides to stop at a neighbor's house to assess his injuries. And I don't know if he actually knew these neighbors or what made him stop there first before going back home, but he stopped there and they actually took pictures of his face. And so those pictures were shown at trial. And I mean, it was horrendous. His face was, looked like his nose may have been broken. He had blood on his face and all over his t-shirt. I mean, his eye looked injured. So there definitely was some sort of assault, you know, that happened in that car from Rob. It seems like the fact that they thought to take pictures and document that, I mean, he must've already been thinking there's going to be some kind of criminal charges that come out of this. Yeah. It was very serious, serious enough so that, you know, for them to take pictures, like you said, and document it. Uh, And his face, I mean, it looked horrible. I mean, it was a terrible assault that happened in that car. So Eric eventually gets back to his own house. He walks in and of course his wife, Maylin, is just horrified. She's like, what happened to your face? Of course, he tells her about the assault in the car. Eric's back at the party. And meanwhile, now uh, Maylin, after uh, Eric and Rob had left, Maylin was able to pull Courtney aside and tell her, look, I don't think you should go home tonight. You guys are in a bad place. You should just spend the night here. You know, it's too heated. Things need to calm down. Courtney didn't want to do that, probably because she was uncomfortable. You know, again, she didn't know many people. She probably didn't know Maylin and Eric very well. It's hard to imagine a more awkward position for her to be in. This house Absolutely. full of people she doesn't know, yeah. especially being embarrassed by her husband. Yes. It was a really awkward position to be in for sure. But Maylin, it seemed, was doing her best to help her out. So then knowing that Courtney didn't want to spend the night, Maylin had offered, hey, I'll drive you anywhere you want to go. Where do you want to go? I'll take you anywhere. And I guess Courtney refused that as well. And at some point, Courtney just left the party without a phone, without keys, and nobody knows where she went. So they only know that all of a sudden Courtney's not there anymore. So by the time Eric gets back from dropping Rob off, Courtney's already gone and nobody knows where she is, but they do know that she doesn't have a phone. She doesn't have keys or anything. So she's just walking around the San Fernando Valley. And by this time it's nighttime, who knows where she went? You know, it's just a really um, scary and dangerous situation to be in. So meanwhile, Rob is in Newhall and just by happenstance, he comes, this guy, I forgot his name. I want to say his name is Nico. A guy named Nico and his girlfriend are driving in Newhall, and Nico was a friend of Courtney's. He sees Rob, and he knows Rob through Courtney. So he pulls over. He's got his girlfriend in the car. Rob kind of tells him what happened. Nico's like, oh, get in. I'll take you to your apartment. Rob gets in the car and immediately starts saying crazy shit. I mean, he's saying things like he's telling um, Nico's girlfriend, if you don't fucking treat Nico right, I'll kill you. And it's like, first off, okay, whoa, that's really aggressive. And also Nico's not even really Rob's friend. He's Courtney's friend. So why is he threatening the girlfriend to treat him right? It's just the weirdest thing. Rob also says something to Nico to the effect of, well, I'm going to go to Mabel's bar and I'm going to do some heroin. You know, I'm going to go do some drugs at Mabel's bar. Mabel's bar is kind of like a dive bar in Santa Clarita. I've been there before. Nothing good happens there. Um, I've seen fights happen there. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those bars, right? 
So he's talking about going to do drugs at the bar. You better treat Nico right or I'll kill you. And, it, it, you know, the car ride quickly becomes very strange. Nico and his girlfriend definitely want the car ride to be over sooner rather than later. So they drop Rob off at Courtney in his apartment. And I guess I should back up a little bit just so people know, you know, the apartment was Rob's first and Courtney quickly moved in after they started dating. You know, she only lived right across the street. So now they're sharing Rob's apartment. So now Rob's home. Nico drives off and he can't get out of there fast enough. I think Nico testified at trial that Rob did call him one more time on his cell phone to say, hey, do you want to go to the bar with me or hang out? And of course, Nico refused after that crazy car ride. You know, I think that the t- as far as timing, I think that it's about eight o'clock in the evening, maybe by that time, you know, by the time Rob's back at his apartment, having been dropped off by Nico. And again, Courtney now is somewhere in the valley. Nobody knows where she is and people are getting a little worried. Now, Rob wants to find Courtney. He also doesn't know where she is. So Rob eventually calls Courtney's mother and just says, look, we had a fight. I can't find Courtney. Is she with you? Have you seen her? Courtney's mom hasn't seen her. This is the first she's heard that they've been into an argument and that her daughter is nowhere to be found. So now Courtney's mom is worried. So Courtney's mom does what probably most mothers would do. She gets in her car and she drives to the San Fernando Valley and she's looking for her daughter. I mean, she has no idea where to go. The valley's huge, but she's going to make an attempt. So, you know, it came out at trial that Courtney really loved the restaurant Chipotle. So, you know, her mom's like, well, let me just go to a Chipotle. She walks into a Chipotle, says, hey, this is what my daughter looks like. Have you seen her? Of course, they haven't seen her. So she leaves there. And essentially, she's never able to find her daughter. And so she, Courtney's mom just drives back home. At some point, there's another phone call. Courtney's mom then calls Rob because so now they're in touch. Now Rob and Courtney's mom are in touch, both with the goal of trying to find Courtney. I think Court, you know, obviously Courtney's mom wants to find her to protect her. Who knows why? Well, we're going to find out later why Rob wants to find her. At some point, I don't know if Rob's called Courtney's mom at this point or Courtney's mom called Rob, but at some point they're on the phone again. And in the background, Courtney's mom testifies at trial. She can hear Rob and Courtney arguing in the background and Rob's telling Courtney, get in the fucking car, get in the fucking car. And Courtney's in the background refusing to get in the car, kind of going back at him like, no, fuck you. I'm not getting in the car. So it's apparent that Rob drove back down to the valley or somewhere and, and caught up with and found Courtney. But Courtney's refusing to get in the car. And meanwhile, Courtney's mom hears this exchange, which likely only made her more worried about her daughter, right? Because things seem to be escalating. And as far as that time, I want to say it's nine o'clock, maybe 930 in the evening uh, by the time that exchange happens. So now Courtney's mom is even more worried. By this time, Courtney's mom was completely worried about her daughter. And she, after that, she tried to call Rob a few times. Rob stops answering his phone and she doesn't know where her daughter is. So now she's getting more and more worried, likely can't sleep. So by around 9.30 in the evening, Courtney makes her, makes her way back to Newhall and all the way back to her apartment. At trial, the prosecutor was not able to tell us how she got back home. We don't know if she hitched a ride or if she used somebody's phone called a friend, but somehow Courtney was able to get back to Newhall and back to her apartment. The thing was that she didn't have her keys, so she couldn't get into her apartment. 
she also did not, her name was not on the lease. So she went to the apartment manager's house, apartment. The apartment manager and his girlfriend lived in an apartment, which was actually in the same complex as Courtney and Rob. They lived on site and managed that apartment complex. Courtney knocks on the door, 9.15, 9.30 at night, and the apartment manager answers the door, and he sees that Courtney looks upset. Courtney's got mascara running down her face. She basically says, I've been into an argument with Rob. I'd like to get into my apartment, but I don't have my keys. I just want to grab my things, and I'm going to go and spend the night with my mom in her apartment. Which is right across the street. Exactly. She could have just walked there. Courtney's name was not on the lease. So the apartment manager could not allow her with his master key to get into the apartment without Rob's permission. And it's one of those things, Scott, where, of course, you're thinking, had this phone call never taken place, had they never gotten Rob's permission ahead of time to let Courtney into the apartment, would she have lived? Because you're going to hear the story unfold and you're going to go, oh my God, there's all these moments where you look back and you go, like her life could have been saved if just something could have been a little bit different. But none of these people knew what was about to happen, right? So it's not their fault, but you can imagine how they feel. So the apartment manager calls Rob. Rob answers the phone and he says, hey, Courtney's here. She wants to get into the apartment. Her name's not on the lease. Do I have your permission to let her into the apartment? Rob says yes. And Rob says, and I'll be right there. And I think the apartment manager ended up calling Rob back and saying, you know what? I actually don't think it's a good idea for you to come here. You don't need to come here. We've got your permission. We're going to let Courtney into the apartment. She's going to stay, you know, at her mom's. Why don't you stay where you're at? Because he, again, he could sense too how elevated this fight was. But Rob says, no, no, I'll be right there. What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, CookUnity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. 
the apartment manager hangs up the phone with Rob. Again, it's around 930 at night by this time. The apartment manager's girlfriend gets the master key and walks Courtney to her apartment. They walk upstairs. They open the door. Courtney goes in and immediately starts just hastily grabbing kind of like some overnight things. So she could just get in and get out and go stay with her mom. You know, at trial, it was shown that she had like, she just grabbed like a Bath and Body Works bag that was in the apartment. There was a hair clip in there. I think there was like a bralette. There just some random items that it looked as if she just grabbed whatever bag she saw and just, it, it was apparent that Courtney was in a hurry to get her stuff and get out. And I think we can imagine why she was in a hurry. Well, she probably knew that Rob was said, I'll be right there and yes. was on his way, right? Yes, exactly. And she also knew how possessive and controlling and how angry he was at her that night. And she probably knew, you know, that he's going to come here and he's going to find me here and it's not going to be good. You know, there was a history of abuse. You know, he had abused her in Vegas. So um, she was in a hurry and she grabbed her things. Well, I think the apartment manager's girlfriend also just could see how heated everything was and offered to walk Courtney across the street to her mom's house to make sure she got there safely. And Courtney said, no, I'll be fine. It's okay. You can go. So the apartment manager does just, just that. The, the girlfriend, she leaves. So now Courtney's in the apartment by herself, gathering her things. She had a cute little dog that she also had on a leash that she was going to bring with her to go to her mom's. Well, because Rob got that phone call from the apartment manager, he left wherever he was and he comes screeching into the apartment complex. Now it's probably 945 at night and he comes screeching in and he comes in so loud that the apartment manager's son, who also lived on site in one of the apartments and helped kind of manage the grounds, heard him screeching in. So Rob screeches into the apartment. He parks his truck in the parking spot directly in front of he and Courtney's apartment. And the apartment manager's son was in his car at the time. He comes driving up to their apartment. He stops. He rolls down the window. Rob's getting out of his truck. And he kind of confronts him and says, hey, man, like you're, you're driving too fast. It's against the apartment rules. you got to slow down. What's going on? Rob says, oh, everything's fine. I'm, you know, who knows what he said, but he just kind of said, hey, everything's fine. They had kind of had a quick conversation. And as they're talking, Courtney must have heard Rob uh, pull in. And so Courtney opens the apartment door, comes walking downstairs. She has her dog in her hand. And she's yelling at Rob. She says, Rob, give me my fucking keys. Give me my fucking keys. I'm leaving. And how we know this is that the apartment manager's son actually testified as to his conversation with Rob and confronting him about the screeching tires. Says he saw Courtney come down. And so it was at that point that the apartment manager's son realized, okay, this is kind of a domestic situation. He felt a bit awkward and felt like he just, it's none of my business. I should get out of here. So he leaves. He says goodbye. He leaves. At that point, he sees Rob walk up the stairs to the apartment. By this time, Courtney had walked back into the apartment after she confronted Rob. So now Courtney and Rob are inside the apartment. Now it's closer to maybe 9.50, 10 o'clock at night. So at that point, there was witness testimony. There was a lady named Maria. She was a tenant at the apartment. She lived directly below Rob and Courtney. Her apartment had the exact same layout as Rob and Courtney's. And she testified that between 10 and 1030-ish, she was sitting in her living room watching TV. And she knew the time because she had to be up 
you know, early the next day for work. And she always went to bed right around the same time. And she was watching a particular TV show. She testified that she hears one loud thump between 10 and 1030. So as if something heavy had fallen in the living room of the apartment directly above them. Essentially, what happened was as soon as Rob got into that apartment, he beat up Courtney. And, you know, there were there were autopsy photos shown and it was just awful. There were crime scene photos shown and then there were also autopsy photos shown. But you could really see she had blood covering the entirety of her face. And it was likely because when you see the autopsy photos, she had two deep cuts on each eyebrow. And as you know, you know, those tend to bleed a lot. So, so that started bleeding. She also had a very deep cut under one of her eyes. I mean, she had been beaten up. She looked as if her jaw was out of place. So her face was slightly disfigured from the beating. So you could just, he was relentless in whatever he did to her. It was theorized at trial that Courtney was likely rendered unconscious from the beating, not dead, but unconscious. And at some point she fell on the living room floor face down on the floor. And so, but that was not the cause of death. I think that it had been reported in local um, news outlets that she had died from blunt force trauma. And although she did suffer a severe beating, her actual cause of death was asphyxiation. Because after Rob had beat her up and she fell, landed face down on the living room floor, he got on top of her or at least put his hands and applied so much pressure to the back of her head that her face was smushed into the carpet and she could no longer breathe and he cut off her airway. And there was a medical expert who testified that it would take approximately 30 seconds for somebody to lose consciousness from their airway being cut off in that manner. And it would take another two to three minutes uh, for somebody to die from their airway being cut off in that manner. So basically, he he Rob beat her up, and then he took the second action of applying so much pressure that she could no longer breathe, and that's how she died. Two to three minutes—that's really an extended period of time to hold someone, someone's head to the to the floor like that. It it is a long time, and if you were to just right now just sit in silence for two to three minutes, it, it is a long time. And it's, they also said that there was, you know, there has to be not just pressure, but a tremendous amount of pressure. So it just seemed to us, it seemed obvious that he was enraged and he wanted to finish the job. You know, ultimately we did, you know, we had the option as jurors, we were presented with a voluntary manslaughter, second degree murder, first degree murder, or not guilty. We deliberated for two days. The trial lasted about two weeks. We deliberated for about two days and we landed on first degree murder in that second day. It took us a while. We knew, we knew almost for the jump that it was not just voluntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter is like, I've used this example before, you know, you're in a bar fight, you punch someone and on the way down, they hit their head on something and they die as a result of that head injury from hitting their head on the way down. You didn't mean to kill them, but your actions caused their death. We knew that it wasn't that. We knew that it was at least second degree murder. Second degree murder is elevated and there has to be what they call malice aforethought. There doesn't have to be premeditation. That's first degree murder, but there has to be malice, uh, malicious intent. So we believe that it was at least second degree murder. Where we landed on first degree murder 
And I learned something new. The judge kind of explained to us that the judge, I think it was the prosecutor, but basically, you know, premeditation can happen in a matter of seconds, minutes, days, months. You know, everybody thinks of premeditated murder like, oh, I, I'm going to kill my husband for the life insurance money. So let me go to Walmart in the months leading up to it or the days leading up to it and buy all the supplies. And that's, you know, and then lie in wait and then kill him. But that is certainly premeditation. But there's also, you know, with Rob, his premeditation was he had already rendered her unconscious. She was laying on the floor. She was zero threat to him. By the way, Courtney was about five feet tall, maybe a hundred pounds. She was not a big girl. She was, she was petite. He was a big man. He was a muscular six foot to six foot two guy, big, you know, bigger guy. So that does matter. But, you know, she was no threat to him. She was unconscious laying on the floor. He could have left her there and he could have gotten up and likely she, she probably would have survived her injuries, but he took the second action of wanting to finish the job. And he got on top of her and he applied that pressure, which is what killed her. And that two to three minutes or even one to three minutes, whatever it took, that's premeditation. He had a moment to think about it and he decided to kill her and he premeditated it and he carried it out. So that's where we landed on first degree murder. And I think that he, his legal team later filed an appeal and it was ultimately upheld that they agreed this was in fact first degree murder with premeditation. So after he kills her, how does it all come out? He didn't go to the police station and turn himself in, I'm sure. Right. So how it all came out was after he killed her, you know, say between 10 and 10.30 p.m., he actually, it came, there there was evidence at trial that was presented that after he killed her, he tried to clean up. So he went to the bathroom. There was, you know, blood evidence, you know, in the drains of the shower, the sink, there was blood on the towels. So he tried to clean up somewhat. He actually left Courtney there in the apartment and he went to Mabel's bar. He tried to get in, but the Mabel's bar doorman testified at trial. He would not let Rob in because Rob was clearly intoxicated. And he said, no, you're too drunk. So Rob got in his truck and drove back home. So what happened was he killed her. He tried to clean up. He stayed in the apartment for a while. He actually drank a bunch of beers after he killed her because those were found in the bathroom. And he tried to get into Mabel's bar. They wouldn't let him because he was too drunk by that time. Rob got back in his truck. He drove back to the apartment and he passed out in the bathroom. But in between that time, so, you know, Courtney's mom was still worried about her. And around midnight, she called the Santa Clarita Sheriff's office and just said, look, can you do a welfare check on my daughter? Can you send somebody to the apartment and see if she's there and see if she's okay? So they did that. So a sheriff's deputy showed up at the apartment around midnight. It was dark outside, of course. He knocks on the door. Rob answers the door, but he only cracks it open a couple of inches. It's completely dark in the apartment behind him that the sheriff, the sheriff's deputy uh, testified to. And he said, hey, I'm here because somebody's very worried about Courtney. They've asked us to do a welfare check. We want to make sure she's okay. Rob said, oh, she's fine. She's sleeping. She's fine. We're both here. Like everything's okay. The sheriff said, well, I have to follow protocol. I have to actually speak with Courtney to make sure she's okay. So can you please go wake her up and bring her to the door so I can talk to her? Rob shuts the door. Rob never comes back. The deputy knocks on the door. I don't know how many times, but he tries to make contact again. Rob never comes back to the door. 
Meanwhile, that sheriff's deputy got a priority call that he had to attend to. So he left their apartment, having never spoke with Courtney. So about an hour and a half goes by. Courtney's mom is still awake. She's still worried, hearing nothing from her daughter. She calls the sheriff's department again. And she says, hey, can you go check on Courtney again? Can you please go to the apartment and make sure she's okay? So by this time, two different sheriff's deputies show up at their apartment. They knock on the door. Nobody answers. This is about 1.30 in the morning now. They knock on the door again. Nobody answers. So they knock on the door harder this time. They testified that at that time, the door actually swung open because they knocked so hard. A lot of us thought later, like maybe they broke protocol and actually like unlawfully opened the door somehow. But regardless, we're, we're, we're glad that the door did open because what happened was the door slightly opened, but it didn't open all the way because Robin Courtney had one of those like hotel locks on the door, you know, the kind of the metal arm that swings. So like if you lock it and somebody opens the door, it kind of like grabs and the doors only open, what, three inches or so. Right. Just a few inches. Yeah. So the door, it opened a few inches, but not all the way because of the hotel lock. At that time, one of the sheriff's deputies turned on their flashlight and started shining it inside the apartment to see what they could see. And it was at that time that they saw a pair of legs on the floor. And they knew, like, this is somebody either passed out on the floor, what's going on. So at that time, they busted the door open. They went inside, and that's where they discovered Courtney's lifeless body laying on the floor in the living room of the apartment. There was video shown at the trial of when the uh, sheriff's deputies first entered the apartment. And it was absolutely, it was haunting, but it was heartbreaking because there she was lying on the floor. And even though she died lying face down, by the time deputies arrived, she was lying face up. And wrapped around her waist was her dog's leash. And her dog was barking at these officers, you know, just he doesn't know who they are. And it was just the absolute saddest thing because you know that Courtney was so close to leaving her apartment. She had her dog on a leash in her hand. And that's when Rob pulled up to the apartment and everything changed. I mean, she was this close to getting away. And you think about, you know, that the, the leash was wrapped around Courtney's waist. So the dog was essentially stuck to Courtney and couldn't go anywhere. So she lays there, you know, and she, she is, she was pronounced dead pretty quickly at the scene. The dog is barking when they come in. And it's just so sad to think about what the dog saw. It just, it's just any, it's just a sad, it was a very haunting video that I'll probably never be able to get out of my mind because there's the dog's owner. Here's the dog. There's nothing the dog can do. The dog can't is, is attached to its owner's body. And the dog is scared because the sheriff's deputies are walking in. It was just a whole thing. So they walk in and, you know, obviously her face is bloody. They can see that something has occurred. So carefully the sheriff's deputies make their way through the apartment probably guns drawn, you know, at this point, they're walking down the hallway slowly. And that's where they find Rob passed out on the bathroom floor uh, of the apartment. And that's when they see all the beer bottles and things like that. So um, Rob was, was arrested and he was apprehended and he was put into the back of the sheriff's deputy's car. And he kind of came to at that point, it was clear that he was intoxicated. Like I said, Courtney was pronounced dead at the scene they brought Rob back to the sheriff's station. Of course, they take pictures. His his palms of his hands had a bunch of dry blood on them. 
Uh, there was blood found on other in other parts of the apartment. And they took a statement from him. And I, I'm pretty sure that he said he didn't know what happened. He probably claimed that he was drunk and didn't know what happened. Basically, what came out at trial is the prosecutor did a good job of kind of showing us what happened. I mean, Rob immediately beat Courtney up at the apartment and we know that she fell to the floor. Maria, the, the lady downstairs, reported that she heard the thump, rendered her unconscious. We know that he cut off her airway and killed her. We think that after he killed Courtney, she was lying face down. He went to the bathroom. He tried to clean up, took a shower. And we think that at that point he left, he tried to get back into Mabel's bar with Courtney's body still in the apartment. They wouldn't let him in because by that time he had drank a bunch of beer at the apartment after he killed Courtney, not before. And that's a an important distinction because his defense would claim that he was in, in an alcoholic stupor, doesn't remember what he did. It was all because of the alcohol. But we know that he was sober before he killed Courtney because there were people who the, there was the apartment manager's son who confronted him for screeching into the, uh, you know, and they showed pictures of his truck and it was perfectly parked between the lines. It was like a perfect parking job. But also the apartment manager's son said he was completely coherent. He wasn't acting erratically or drunk or anything like that. He had a very sober conversation with him at that time. So we know that he killed Courtney, went into the bathroom, tried to clean up, drank a whole bunch of alcohol, got drunk, tried to get into the bar, got rejected, went back to the apartment. And we think that he probably went home and turned Courtney's body over to see what he had done to see like, is she dead? What did I do? So, and then he went back to the bathroom and that's where he passed out and that's where he was eventually found. So that's kind of how everything unfolded. And it's just, um, you think about all the things that happened that could have saved Courtney's life, but people ha- didn't know it at the time that she was in, in imminent danger. Right. Hindsight's easy. Yes. But, you know, on the other hand, this is not a marriage that was destined for to last for a long time. That Something would have happened eventually, even if it wasn't on this night. You're exa- those were my thoughts exactly. And, and other jurors said the same afterward. It's like he was, Rob was a ticking time bomb. And we, you know, we can talk about the trial and there were some very key witnesses who testified, uh, two of which were two of Rob's uh, ex-girlfriends from years prior. And it was absolutely horrifying to hear what they testified to and the treatment that he you know, inflicted upon them. It's it, They're both very lucky to be alive today. And so it's like, if he didn't kill Courtney on that night, would he have killed her on another night? Because he was a ticking time bomb. And it's interesting, Scott, because ever since I sat on the jury, I've come across people, I still live in the Santa Clarita Valley, and I've come across people who knew him. Um, I have two friends who we realized they were very good friends of Rob's back in the day, well before he met Courtney. And they actually distanced themselves from him back then because he was just on a path of drugs and alcohol and violence and just not being a good person. So they they were not shocked that this happened, you know, years later in his life. And I also came across one of his former employers at a uh, silk screening shop here in the Santa Clarita Valley. Where I was getting some things embroidered or silk screened and, and we got to talking and realized she had at one point 
employed Rob and she was very close to him. And so was her daughter. Rob had given her daughter a tattoo. Rob was a tattoo artist. And she said that basically there, his employment ended there in a rage. He got so enraged with her, his employer, he left cussing her out and just in a storm of verbal abuse toward her. So she also was like, you know, I, of course, she's shocked to hear what he did to Courtney. But again, she's like, I'm not all that shocked because he had it in him to be a very angry person. Yeah. He just left a trail of destruction wherever he went. He did. Well, let's talk about how you got into this, how you got involved with this trial. You got a jury summons and I'm wondering, was that the first time you've ever gotten a jury summons? And what were you? What did you think when you first saw that? So it wasn't the first time. I had gotten one before, but as many of us do, I was able to get out of it. And that was years prior. Just call in and say that it's a conflict with work or whatever it was. So I had never actually served on a jury or even stepped foot into the courthouse because of a jury summons. So it was in June of 2017. So the murder happened in 2015. And in June of 2017, I got a jury summons. And again, as I, I was up to my old tricks, I called and, and got it extended because I didn't want to go. I was just busy in my career and, and life. I had a young daughter at the time. And See, I always thought maybe, maybe different states have different rules, but I always thought uh, if, if you just say I can't do it because of work, that's not a good enough excuse. I, don't, I didn't think that could get you out of it. I think you're right. And I think they've tightened things up. So by the time I got this jury summons, I think what I was able to do was put it off, but not completely get out of it. So I did. I just kind of bought myself some time. I was was able to just say, give me a reprieve. I can't remember how it worked, but you call in and you're able to at least once say, no, I can't serve this time, but in the future, yes. So a month later in July, I was instructed to call in again on that same jury summons. I think how it worked was I got an extension, but the instructions were call in again on July, whatever date and see if you have to be called in at that time. So I called in and I think I was not, I did required to go in, but I was instructed to call in again the next day, called in the next day. And lo and behold, it says, okay, you are now required to report to the San Fernando Superior Court. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. So I went and um, long story short, about 70 something of us were instructed to go to the fourth floor 
which I would later find out are where all the serious crimes are tried, like murder trials and things like that. And there was a bunch of us filled in the hallway right outside the courtroom. And I was sitting on a bench uh, and, and a, a gentleman sat next to me, probably in his mid fifties. We get, he's, we strike up a conversation and he tells me that he's a homicide detective. So of course my ears perk up because I've always been into true crime. And of course I start picking his brain and we start chatting and he goes, you know, this trial you're about to maybe be, serve on is most likely a homicide trial. And I said, well, why would you say that? He says, I can tell by how many of you are here. So I guess whenever it's a murder trial, they choose more jurors, you know, because it's more harder potential to get jurors, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 More potential jurors. So I said, wow. Okay. So after I got done talking to him, all of us, 70 something of us were instructed to go into the courtroom. We all sat down. The judge starts talking. We're all assigned a four digit juror number. And the judge starts talking about what our instructions were, how this is all going to go down, how they're going to choose people to go sit in the jury chairs. And he says something, something, something. And all I heard was 187. And that's when I knew this is a murder trial because I know that 187 stands for homicide. And I guess if you're a true crime addict, you know that. Or if you're somebody who listens to gangster rap, which I also am that person, that, you, know, okay. <laughs> you know what 187 means. So I was like, just oh like everybody God, knows I, what 420 means, right? Yes, yes, I, I, I know what that means too. I'm not, not going to tell you why. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, so it's just you know you knew this is a murder trial, just like the homicide detective had said. He was right. They basically called out 18 of those four digit numbers, and those 18 people were instructed to go sit in the jury box, and that's when they start getting asked questions by just a general set of questions at first. And I can't remember if it's the judge or the prosecutor who asked these questions, probably the prosecutor, but they start asking these people, what's your occupation? Are you married? What's your spouse's occupation? Do you have children? Are they adults? What's their occupation? So they're trying to get a sense of all of that. Based on some of those preliminary questions, some people were eliminated from that jury pool. And so they had to start calling other numbers. And I was in that second round of numbers. They called my number. So I got up, I went and sat in the number six seat, uh, juror seat. And that's where I stayed. So I ended up sitting there. And I think that void year, you know, the jury process selection process took about two days. And I just stayed there the whole time I was ended up being selected on the jury. But I guess when the prosecutor starts asking more in-depth questions to find out if they want to keep you on the jury or not, that's when we kind of had a clue as to what this trial would be about. She started act asking, you know, have you or anybody in your immediate family struggled with alcoholism? Uh, have you ever been um, the victim of domestic abuse? Have you ever been accused or charged with domestic abuse? So you could get a sense that there was something to do with alcohol and domestic violence that were going to come out in this trial. So they ended up choosing uh, 12 of us to sit on the jury. I was juror number six. And there were three alternates who sat in, in the front. And, you know, if any of us were ever excused, they would be called in, you know, to sit on the permanent jury. But they had to sit through the whole trial. Did those three also sit in on the uh, jury deliberations after the trial? No, they didn't because all of us jurors were able to stick it out. Nobody was ever excused. So none of those alternates were were called to sit as part of the permanent jury. Uh, so when the deliberations happened, all of us 
12 jurors who had been selected from the beginning went to deliberate. And at that point, the alternate alternates, their job is over, which is kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's disappointing for them because here they sat through the whole trial, but they get no say in it. Right. 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 So they're just there just in case. What I was thinking is what if, what if one of the jurors passes out or has to be excused during deliberations, you know, the alternates haven't really been part of the conversation up till that point, And they'd have to kind of come in halfway. It's a great point. And I hadn't even thought about how that would go. I don't know if they would have then called one of those alternates in. Maybe those alternates were given instructions. Hey, the, the trial's over. You're not going to del- deliberate at this point. But I wonder if they got instructions that, hey, you're still not allowed to talk about the details of this trial because we may have to call you in for deliberations. I wonder if that happened. Okay. And I don't I don't know the answer to that. But but I had talked to two of those alternate jurors later after the trial because they wanted to know how did deliberations go because they didn't get to be part of it. So I talked to them and they were very let down that they didn't get to be a part of that conversation. But it was interesting to hear how they would have uh, voted or you know how what their decision would have been. During the two weeks when the trial was happening, you aren't allowed to ask any questions or anything, right? You just kind of just take it all in. Can you even take notes? We were definitely able to take notes and and we took a lot of them. I mean, my my notepad was full. I mean, it was a two-week trial. It's a long time and there's just so many details. So they do give each juror a pad of paper and a pencil, which of course you have to leave there at the end of every day. You can't bring it home or anything like that. And a lot of us took vigorous notes and we were able to bring those notes with us into deliberations. Interestingly, we were not allowed to take them with us after we reached a verdict. We had to leave our notepads there. The first order of business was that we had to pick a jury foreman. And, you know, as you probably know, the jury foreman's job is not to carry the weight of deciding how the verdict should go. It's really just to make sure that everybody on the jury has a voice and an opportunity to speak and state their opinion and their point of view so that it's not skewed toward just a handful of jurors making the decision for everybody. So pretty quickly, I was chosen as the jury foreman. I think they they asked, would anybody be willing to be the jury foreman? And a few of us raised our hand and I had no issue with it. So I raised my hand and there were some other people who raised their hand. And I don't know if they select, I I don't know why they selected me, to be honest with you. There was really no discussion of, oh, we think it should be, I think probably just somebody looked at me and was like, okay, you're willing to do it. And everybody kind of looked around and everybody's like, yeah, sounds good. She's the jury foreman, you know, man, (laughs) it it was, it was interesting. And then it's like, you kind of don't know what you're getting yourself into. It does. It seems so random. And this is a job you've never done before. And someone's life is hanging in the balance. It just seems a little bit haphazard. It, it does. It seems like it should be more formal and, and all of this. But I knew, I felt very strongly, I felt the weight of being a juror and I felt the weight of being the jury foreman. Absolutely. I mean, I lost sleep over it. I never took that lightly that regardless of how I felt based on the evidence that was presented about this defendant, what we're about to decide is going to impact his life and several other people's lives forever. So it was a very, very heavy, but I did feel like I could be a person to make sure nobody got bullied in the jury room, that everybody had a chance to speak. Some people are going to be more shy than others, and we can make sure that they have an opportunity to speak and just 
I felt like I could make it a safe space for all of us and to really listen and let everybody speak. And we did that. I have to say the jury was a very, it was a very good experience. There were differing opinions for sure, but it was interesting as we sat at the table, it's this big rectangular table and all 12 of us sat around it. It was interesting because I was on the right side of the table, you know, along with six other people. And then the six other jurors were on the left side. The left side, those were the quiet people. You had to draw conversation out of them. Um, and that was the hardest part of my job as the jury foreman is to say, but wait, you're nodding your head, but like, what do you think? You know, do you agree with what this person's saying over here? But my side of the table, including me, were very boisterous. We had no problem saying, but what about this? But let's talk about this, you know, get up and write things on the board to kind of map it out. So one side of the table was boisterous. The other side was quiet. As far as the age and cultural makeup, it ranged from people in their, I want to say mid-20s up to their uh, 60s, maybe early 70s. There were Caucasian people, Hispanic people, Asian. So it just, it was, it was fairly mixed. There were men, there were women. It it was, it didn't, I, I don't remember it ever being like, oh, wow, it's a bunch of 40-year-old females or anything like that. Well, that's the whole point of choosing people for the jury, right? To be uh, yes. have a variety. Yeah. Absolutely. And then there was a decent variety for sure. After we chose the jury foreman, we got right to work. Now, Rob Arvizu, the defendant, not only was he charged with first-degree murder, up to first degree, it was up to us to decide, but he was charged with murder, some level of murder or or voluntary manslaughter, but also he had two assault charges that we had to decide on. And that was for the assault on his best friend, Eric, in the car on the night of the party. Fairly quickly, we decided, let's talk about the assault charges first and sort of decide on those, get that out of the way so we can move on to the murder. We decided fairly quickly, yes, he assaulted his friend in a very serious way. There was evidence of it. More than one witness testified about it. We had photos. So we did decide he was guilty of the two assault charges. And the whole time in the in the courtroom while this is all going on, but before the jury deliberations, Rob is sitting there, right? And he is. Did you make co- eye contact with him or what was his demeanor during the trial? We did, uh, especially when we, we had the verdict was sort of like the creepiest part for me because there was a point at which Rob made contact, eye contact with every single juror. And it was just, oh, it was, it was, you don't, I don't want to look you in the eye. It was just very creepy. And he had an interesting look about him. And there were moments during trial when there was laughter in the courtroom, believe it or not, there was, you know, the judge was kind of like a dynamic personality type judge. And he had said a couple things and I can't remember what, where people kind of giggled a little bit in the courtroom, as interesting as that is in a murder trial. And Rob would laugh. And there was one time when he swung back in his chair and kind of like scan the whole jury. And I, you know, whenever he did that, I would be kind of like, uh, looking the other way, just really never, I I was glaring at him a lot of times during trial, because of course I'm trying to gauge his reactions to things, his reaction to the witness testimony. But when it came time to look him in the eyes, it's not something I was interested in. And there were times during, you know, the witness testimony, his best friend, May Lynn, who was the wife of Eric, where the house party was, they had such a, a deep history together of being friends that Rob was actually the godfather to Maylin 
children. But she was called in by the prosecution to testify against Rob. So although she knew what he did was horrible and did not agree with it and, and, and thought it was just atrocious, she was so deeply affected by, gosh, you can imagine all these decades of being friends with somebody and you love this person and here he is charged with murder and you've got to testify against him. So when she was walked into the courtroom to testify, she was, she came in sobbing. She was already visibly shaking, like just trembling. And when her witness testimony was over, there was this tense moment, awkward moment for sure in the courtroom. When she was done with her testimony, she was excused from the witness stand and every other witness would kind of like get up and couldn't wait to get out of there fast enough. She sat there after she was excused by the judge and just glared at Rob and she was trembling and crying. And, you know, we, we don't know what she was thinking, but in my mind, I always thought she was thinking like, why did you do this? You didn't have to do this. Why did it have to be this way? I've met people who actually say that Rob was very charismatic and he was a nice guy. Somebody described him as a big teddy bear after the trial who I came across who knew him. So I think Rob had different sides for sure. I think that he was charismatic. I think people really liked him and loved him and thought he was a big teddy bear, but then there, but they also saw very dark, ugly, violent sides to him, especially the two girlfriends, which we can talk about if you'd like, but, um, in deliberations. Yeah. So then we, then we were like, okay, the assault charges, we're going to convict him of that, but let's talk about the murder. And as I said earlier, you know, we kind of knew right away, this was not voluntary manslaughter. This was, this, there was malice involved. And so we knew that it was at least second degree murder. And I think I told you earlier, we, we got, it took us the second day to get to first degree murder. We got to second degree murder on the first day, but some of us were ready to say, you know what, this is actually first degree murder. But at that point you could see that not everybody was on the same page and it was serious enough that we thought, you know what, let's, let's sleep on it. Let's come back on Monday. And we'll try to decide then. And that's exactly what we did. I think we came back on a Monday. We kind of threw a bunch of things onto the board. And I think most, as I recall it, most of the jury, if not everybody except for one person, what was of the thought that this was first degree murder. And we explained it the same way I explained to you earlier. But there was one gentleman who just couldn't get to first degree murder because he kept saying, but, but he just snapped. He thought she was, you know, she, he accused her of cheating and he snapped. That made him so angry that he snapped. But to a lot of us, we said, but that's not normal, typical behavior. Number one, there's no evidence that she was cheating. Number two, it's not like he walked in on her having intercourse with another man right in front of his eyes. A lot of times somebody will snap and, and kill their spouse because that's so shocking. That did not happen. He was accusing her of cheating at a party, but this is not, I think that if it were any other typical relationship, not everybody, but most people, if you believe your spouse or girlfriend or anybody is cheating, you're not going to go and beat them up and murder them. That's not typical behavior. So why are we going to give Rob essentially a pass for acting outside of typical human behavior and taking such an extreme measure because he just is 
so enraged by the thought of her even cheating. So that was our thought. We said, no, that's, we're not, he didn't just snap. He didn't walk in. This is not what you call a crime of passion. It took a while and we all debated it for a while. And then eventually that juror realized and, and agreed that Rob didn't have to get on top of her and cut off her airway. He could have just left her there. She was no threat to him, but he made the decision. He premeditated it. It was quick premeditation, but he premeditated it and he took that second act and for one to three minutes or two to three minutes, he killed her. And that's how we got to first degree. So we sent a note to the judge from the deliberations room that we had reached a verdict. Then we were all at some point, we waited there for a while. We were all, the jury were all ushered back into the courtroom. We took courtroom. We took our normal seats in the jury box. I was back at number six and the judge pulled the verdicts, the three verdicts, the two assault charges and the murder out of the envelope and read it quietly to himself. Then he put it back in the envelope. He handed it to the court clerk and she's actually the one who read the verdict aloud. And I had no idea whether I was going to have to read the verdict as a jury foreman. I had seen that before, you know, so I was, I was going to do it. If it was part of my job, I would do it and get the job done. But I was very anxious and nervous that I was actually going to have to read it because it's like all eyes on me. And it's just, it's a very heavy thing, but I was very relieved to see that it was actually the court clerk who was going to read the verdict aloud. She did that. She read it and there was essentially no reaction from Rob. What about his family? I assume he had some family members or friends with him. Did they have any kind of reaction or how would, how did they behave? You know, it was interesting. He really did not have family there. Uh, on, on a couple of days, we saw a woman with big white rimmed glasses and another woman sitting next to her who came for a couple days. I think we learned later that may have been his mother, but I, I can't say for sure, but they were not there often. They were only there for maybe like a couple of days. There was a gentleman who was there every single day. And he sat at the back of the courtroom on Rob's side and the jury, we never knew who this guy was. I had always thought maybe he's part of the media. Maybe I, I didn't know who he was. We found out after we deliberated and, and were excused from the trial, uh, we found out from the prosecutor who we found in the elevator on the way down, and she happened to answer some of our questions, which was nice of her. She told us that was actually Rob's stepfather, that he was in the courtroom every single day. What happened was years, Rob had two daughters with a woman from years ago, and that woman actually did testify at trial on Rob's behalf. He didn't have many people who testified on his behalf, but it, the mother to his children did testify for him. He had two daughters. And when they were very young, I want to say toddlers, I don't know if they, he and his baby's mother lost custody or they gave up custody because both of them were on drugs and not living a lifestyle that was conducive to being healthy for two children. So they gave up either way. They did not have custody and custody was given to Rob's stepfather at the time. So that man who was in the courtroom had custody of Rob's children from a very young age. He moved them to Alaska, I believe. I want to say Alaska. And that's where he raised them until they were teenagers. I want to say they're probably teenagers or maybe in their early 20s by now, but probably at least teenagers by the time their father went on trial for murder. So it was interesting that he had these two daughters, but he really never had custody of them from a young age. It was his stepfather. 
The stepfather was there every single day because he wanted to know for certain whether Rob was guilty of what he had been accused of so that he could explain accurately to his daughters what their father had done or not done. And interestingly, that man made contact with me after the trial. He got my email address and he emailed me and it was a very tense moment, but he was actually very kind, very well-spoken in his email, very open. He, he told me that the jury probably had come to the right conclusion and that he does not condone at all what his stepson had done, uh, but that he is, I think his words were, Rob is probably where he should be. So it was just very, very interesting. But yeah, but other than that, Rob did not have family or friends and that sitting on his side during court. And, you know, that says a lot. I think that probably Rob had burned a lot of bridges in his life due to his substance abuse and his behavior and whatever else may have been going on. I think he burned a lot of bridges. Courtney did have family there and it was very, very, very difficult to see them. Her mother was there on a few occasions, although we found out later after the autopsy and or crime scene photos were shown. She did not show up after that point. And uh, she had had a mental breakdown, according to the prosecutor, and she was not able to bring herself to court for the sentencing. Where I was sitting on the juror box, I was the closest to the gallery. My seat was right on the edge of the left side of the juror box. So whoever was sitting in the gallery was right there next to me. And it was just very when when the autopsy photo and the crime scene photos were shown on this screen in the courtroom, I'm seeing it and just a few feet away from me is Courtney's mother and sisters. And it just, that was the, I don't remember any other moments where I started to cry because I always told myself, you can't do that. It's not professional. It's not your tragedy. It's Courtney's family's tragedy to endure. And you just, you just can't do that. But I think quietly and probably nobody knew, but that that is one moment where I became emotional because it just, I'm a mother and I cannot imagine that being a moment that I would have to endure. You can't avoid empathizing with, yeah, with another mother, just not necessarily just a mother, but another person. A human who's lost somebody they love, let alone your own child. Right. So that, that was very, very heavy. So we convicted him of first degree murder. I was not able to go to the sentencing hearing. And by the way, the jury, we had nothing to do with sentencing. We only decided on the verdict and the judge was going to handle the sentencing. And we knew that from the get-go. And we knew this is not like a death penalty case. The judge said, this is not a death penalty case and you are not going to decide on sentencing. You're going to decide on the verdict only, which was uh, some weight off of our shoulders. It was already enough to decide on a verdict. But I did follow up later and see that the judge sentenced Rob to 28 years to life. I believe he got 25 years for the murder charge, three years for the two assault charges. And he, I think the judge made a comment saying something like, I don't know if you're a monster, but you're certainly a bully and you've used your size and your whatever to inflict great harm on somebody. Rob never issued any kind of apology. He, in his statement said something like, there's been a lot of lying during trial you know, calling out the other witnesses who testified against him. And he also claimed, you know, someday I might be able to tell you what happened. But at this point, you know, I don't remember. So again, he's claiming that probably he was drunk and doesn't remember killing her, which I think is not true. And the only thing he said at the end was, I apologize for 
for all that's gone on here. But he didn't say, I apologize to Courtney's family. They've lost someone, nothing like that. I think his apology was more general, like almost like I apologize for all the lying that's gone on here. You know, who knows what he meant by that, but it was just a very general apology, but nothing directed toward the victim's family. So if his stepfather was able to contact you, have you ever thought about what if Rob gets out of prison someday and he contacts you? Yeah, I, I've absolutely thought about that. And in fact, about two years ago, I got a random call and it said basically like an inmate was trying to contact me from prison. Now, I do know that there are scams that go around where they act like they're doing that. And if you want to accept the call, you have to give a credit card. It absolutely, I don't think it was Rob, but it, but it shook me. It sort of like triggered something in me to go, oh my God, you know, is he trying to contact me? Which I don't believe that. I think that that's, I think it was probably some sort of scam. I don't have any family or friends who are in prison. So I, I don't think anybody was trying to contact me. I think it probably was a scam, but it was scary. But I will tell you something very, very, very strange that I still can't wrap my head, head around to this day. My husband and I own a landscape construction company and we operate our business out of like an office warehouse type deal in the LA area. And one day I went out to go get the mail at our office as I do every day. And I saw this magazine in there and it said something about tattoos. And instantly I thought of Rob Arvizu. I, I don't know why this is like a couple years after I sat on the trial, you know, so I just... Tattoos, because they talked so much about Rob being into tattoos. He was tatted from head to toe. Like he had tattoos on his hands. He had tattoos, I think, on the back of his head. Uh, his head was shaved bald. You know, he had a very interesting look. I, I just associated tattoos right away with Rob. So I go to get the mail. I see this magazine and I see the edge of it and it says something about tattoos. And I'm like, oh, you know, I had a flash thought about Rob Arvizu. I pull the magazine out and it's addressed to Arvizu Inc., like I-N-K, Inc., like tattoo ink. And I know for a fact that Rob was a tattoo artist and he would give people tattoos at his apartment. I believe he actually worked professionally at it, maybe had his own business doing tattoos. And that's not a common last name that you run across all the time. So I was it said Arvizu Inc. And he was a tattoo artist. His last name is Arvizu. And I was like, this is his business. Why am I getting Rob Arvizu's mail at my business? Did it have that name, but your address? Yes. That's weird. Yeah. I was baffled. I, my face turned white. I went in, I told my husband, he's like, and so we're both trying to figure out. And, and now I can't, I guess if I did a little more research, I could confirm. But I'm almost positive that Rob had a business called Arvizu Inc. I could be wrong. Maybe this is a totally different Arvizu who had a tattoo company. It was clear. It was a tattoo magazine. I opened it up and it's all about tattoos. So, uh, you know, I'm just completely baffled. So uh, what I did first was I contacted the previous owner of the building that we now own. And I asked him, it just, I said, I have a random question for you. You can answer it or not. But did anybody named Robert Arvizu, Rob Arvizu, ever work for you before? And he immediately said no. 
And so I thought, okay, because that would make sense. Maybe Rob worked in the building that we now own for, you know, and that person, maybe that person got his mail sometimes. So to be honest with you, I have no idea why I got that magazine. I can't confirm that it's actually for Rob Arvizu, but it says Arvizu Inc. And it just, I don't know, to this day, it's just a weird, random thing that's spooky. You have a true crime podcast yourself. And was this experience, what kind of prompted you to start doing that? I know you were already into true crime before, but uh, did this kind of spur that along? It definitely did. And and in fact, that's how Rob's stepdad got a hold of me is that I sort of told this story as the first episode of my podcast called Murderish. So as soon as I got off that jury, I had already been mulling over the idea uh, before the, the murder trial came of starting a podcast. I didn't know what kind. I knew it would probably be true crime because that's what I was, I've always been into. And I was a, an avid podcast listener. I had already been doing research to start a podcast, but had not taken any real steps to launch it. Then I sat on this jury and I thought, you know, this would be an interesting story to tell. And it's really what kicked me into high gear into launching Murderish. So yeah, the answer is absolutely. This made me want to start a true crime podcast and that I always knew this would be probably my first episode. And it was. And that is somebody around town must have told Rob's friends and family about the podcast. And so his stepfather had listened to the podcast about me telling the story kind of from A to Z from a juror's perspective. And that is one thing that he said. He said, I do think that you told the story accurately based on what went down in the courtroom. And I thought that was nice because I truly wanted to not do any sensationalizing and just really just tell a true factual story of, of this case. So yeah, that, that, this case, definitely, I had already had it in my mind to start a podcast, but I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it now. And I never looked back and it's been four and a half years. Yeah. How many episodes do you have out now? I uh, just surpassed a hundred. I think I'm currently writing episode 104. Cool. It's been a ride. Yeah. And it's, I know it's gotta be when you're doing a true crime podcast, it's gotta be, I run into this sometimes on some of the stories I cover on my show. It's a real balance. To tell the story, to have the person tell the story in my case, but not cross the line to shock and to exploit uh, what happened just for the shock of it. Do you ever find yourself kind of walking that line? Absolutely. You know, I've covered some cases where a child is a victim and those are always the toughest. And sometimes I go through spurts where I say, you know, I just really can't do any child cases right now. It's just so dark and it's, I'm a mom. And even if you're not a, not a parent, it's just so hard when a helpless human being is murdered in such a tragic way. And to add another layer, when there's, when there's sexual assault involved, especially with a minor, that is where I try to be very, very careful not to regurgitate detail by detail. What, because I don't think it's necessary. You can say that it happened without getting into detail because you never know who's listening and you just, yeah, so that you walk that fine line for sure. I do like to tell a full bodied, you know, 3D story so people have all the important facts, but you really always try to be careful not to cross that boundary. But yeah, absolutely. So, and, and that goes with any victim. There's sometimes when there are details that I 
give on the show that make make me cringe, you know, that are just somebody died, their murder was just horrific. But there's a way in which I think you can say it and tell it and make sure that you highlight the victim and who they were and make people see them as an actual human being. Because I think it's so easy to disassociate yourself and just listen to their story as they were a murder victim and all the gory details of how they died and, and all of that. But to make sure that you can tell the details of who that person was and make them a real person in that listener's mind. Yeah. Well, I know for me, and I'm, I'm sure I speak for my listeners as well, if there's any one little glimmer of light in this story, it's that the dog survived. Yes, the dog did survive. And you know, that is probably the number one question I get asked after people listen to the episode I did on this case. What happened to the dog? I want to say the dog went to live with Courtney's mom. I can't be certain. I think so. All these details are coming to me. So after this, also one of Courtney's sisters reached out to me, her little sister. And interestingly, she was never in the courtroom because I believe her father would not allow her to be because it was just too heavy. She, I think she was like nine years old at the time. And I, and I understand that. But she was extremely sweet. And she I think she did allow me to ask a few follow-up questions. But I want to say the dog ended up with one of Courtney's family members, if not her mom. And uh, the dog was okay. But yeah, I mean, that's people, again, it goes back to a, a helpless being, you know, being a victim in any way. And that includes pets, you know, children, pets, definitely things like that. Well, how can people find your podcast? It's, I know it's called Murderish. And where are you on the web or where can people find you? Yeah, so they can find Murderish on my website. It's just murderish.com, M-U-R-D-E-R-I-S-H.com. And I'm really big on Instagram. I love doing fun Q&As on there. And I do a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I've started to do Instagram lives. Um, but you can find me on Instagram at Murderish Podcast. But I also have a really fun uh, Murderish Facebook discussion group. I have a Facebook page, which is fine, but I'm really active in the discussion group. And I guess if you just search murderish podcast discussion group, you'll find it. And we've got just under 3000 members and everybody, it's not a dramatic, it's not like I've been in some other groups and they're super dramatic and there's a lot of drama and a lot of fighting. We really don't have that in my group, which I'm really lucky. We have a lot of fun. We talk about murder cases and just share different, you know, memes and things like that. All right. Well, that's where people can go to, to get involved with murderish. Jamie, thanks for sharing the story. It's super interesting. I've always wanted to be on a jury myself, and I've never gotten the notice. I don't know it's because I'm not registered as one of the two main parties, or I probably would be disqualified anyway because uh, we I, I have family in law enforcement, and so I think yes. that kind of rules you out a little bit. But uh, really interesting to hear, to hear how it all works. Thank you. I'm so happy to be on your podcast. Uh, I love your podcast, by the way. It's such an interesting format and so many crazy stories have been told on your show that that almost don't seem real. Rob Arvizu is currently incarcerated at the High Desert State Prison in Northern California. I contacted him directly to see if he had any comments of his own for this episode. He did receive my message, but he chose not to reply. And while you were listening to Jamie tell this story, you might have been thinking, Hmm, that voice sounds familiar. And that's because you hear her voice each time you listen to this podcast. 
there is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. Yep, that's Jamie. She was a guest on this podcast a couple of years ago, and she told the story of the time a strange man followed her home one night and actually got inside her house. Pretty creepy. That episode is called Jamie Found a Stranger in Her Bedroom. So this is the first time I've actually had a guest on the show twice. And you already know Jamie is the host of the true crime podcast, Murderish. But what you may not know is that she's about to launch a second podcast. It's called Dirty Money Moves. It's about incredible crimes committed by women. I'll have more details and a link to that in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 104. You know, hearing Jamie talk about this case and her experience being on the jury made me think of the movie called 12 Angry Men. The original one is a true classic. It's made in 1957, and it starred Henry Fonda, and you can currently watch that one on YouTube. Then it was remade with Jack Lemmon in 1997, and that's on Amazon Prime. They're both really good. And speaking of YouTube, I want to let you know I'm going to be expanding what I do on the podcast YouTube channel. At the moment, every What Was That Like episode gets posted on YouTube. So you can listen to it there if you want. But I'll be adding more videos in the near future on a pretty regular basis. I'm still working on putting that together, and I'll be talking about it more pretty soon. But if you want to see what's happening, check out the YouTube channel and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com slash YouTube. And that brings us to this week's listener story about a scary situation involving some crazy weather. Stay safe. I'll see you in two weeks. So my story happened on August 19th, 2009. I was living in Minneapolis, and on that day I was driving home from a friend's house in a rainstorm that very quickly turned into a severe thunderstorm with high winds and very bad uh, visibility. I'm driving southbound on 35W, and all of a sudden, I see this gigantic tree limb sailing sideways through the air, hundreds of feet, and all of this other debris through the air. And I realized this is very dangerous. I need to get off the highway. I need to get pulled over. So I found an exit, and I, I pulled into the off-ramp. And just as I was pulling off, another tree branch had slammed into my windshield, cracking it the full width of, you know, full width of the windshield. So I slammed on my brakes, still on the exit, not yet onto the other road I was trying to merge on. And I just stopped knowing that, you know, it's not the best place to stop, but <laughs> didn't really know what else to do. And then maybe just a second later, I felt my car begin to lift up off the ground, just lurching upward like in a vacuum. And for the next second that just stood still for an eternity, I was terrified. There were no more thoughts, no more words, just the feeling that I'm about to die. And suddenly it was over. Just as quickly as it had come on, my car was on the ground. There was debris everywhere, tree branches everywhere. All of the windows in all the shops around me had been shattered. 
And I was just screaming my head off, just, what the fuck, what the fuck? Screaming to myself as I continued to drive home. And then as I got home, then the tornado sirens started. And I hadn't really put everything together yet. I thought, oh, well, the storm was already so crazy, there must be something worse coming. So I took shelter in my bathroom for hours, just watching the news. And then I finally figured out, no, the the tornado had already passed. And when I saw the path of where the, the storm had gone, I realized, oh, it went right through where I had been driving. That moment that I felt the car lift up. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.